Okay guys, welcome to Petri Dish. I'm Nathan. I'm Sean. And here we are with Micro Moment. We're in part two of our series on medieval medicines, crazy treatments, and diseases. Yeah, beautiful. Wow, Nathan. That I was know. extremely cogent. I know. Uh, two glasses of wine in. <laughs> start to get to that sweet, yeah, sweet cogent vibe. You've sharpened up a little bit. Yeah, That's yeah. Some crisp. <laughs> But anyway, guys, introduce yourselves for our lovely audience who skipped our first episode because they're bastards. Yeah, they should totally go back and listen to the first episode because it was amazing. But yeah, I am Tess. And I'm John. I'm Nathan. <laughs> Don't do this. I'm sorry. I'm What's sorry. wrong with you? Yes. And y'all are the Microbe Moment podcast. And last time we got to, you know, sort of set the stage a little bit for medieval times. You know, we like, like well, you did the whole time travel sort of like melty screen thing. And right. It's like, oh, there's straw huts and caca or yeah, whatever, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. bird Roosters. sounds and everything. There was the DeLorean, there was Doc Brown, you know, the good stuff. Yeah, there was beautiful. unicorns. Chicken butts, you know, yes. we got it all. Yes. Narwhals and unicorns. And so this time, I think... We're going to uh, keep the train rolling. Yes. Right? Because we talked about bubonic plague. We talked a little bit about, like, you know, kind of systems of medicine and herbalism back then, which we're going to return to a little bit in this episode. We're going to start off by talking about something that's kind of really fascinating that Sean discovered, a disease that doesn't exist anymore, but was so commonly recorded during the time and was so widely known that it must be real. Despite the fact that this disappeared, it's going to, I think, solicit a pretty interesting conversation. I got some stuff about contraceptives we can throw in there as well. And, uh, of course, the big pox as well. Yeah. So, which I always think is a fun topic. Ooh, We're going to talk of also a little bit about Chinese birthing and contraception. Ooh. Uh, and so I think there's going to be... <laughs> why are you making that thing? How is that slipping in <laughs> It's an audiovisual medium. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no, it's not visual. <laughs> no! <laughs> Minus the visual. <laughs> That's true. Hopefully this visual is never, <laughs> never released. Aw, you're so cute. <laughs> Uh-oh. But anyway, yeah, so let's talk about some more medieval medicine and diseases. Yeah, let's get into it. All right, so uh, the one that I had ended up researching, I was kind of like running around, looking yeah, up. Yeah, Sean was on Google, first. and he looked up, I have the sweats. <laughs> yes. And then to his surprise, <laughs> he found a medieval disease. I, I, I was viscerally sweating from a fever that I was very actively going through. But what I found was that there's this disease that's, you know, I mean, it's definitely less famous than the Black Death, which we had talked about in the last it's episode. It's kind of more hipster, really. <laughs> yeah, hipster. it's a little bit of a hipster that. disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it kind of shows up a little bit more kind of like at the end of what we would traditionally call the medieval period. Right. right. We're kind so, of running into the Renaissance and the early modern at this point. Right, exactly. And so in that time period which I would say is like the 1400s, 1500s. Sexy. We had this disease called the sweating sickness, mm. a.k.a. Sudor Anglicus, or the English sweat, the sweat, the swat, the new acquaintance, stop knave and know thy master, or also what? known as <laughs> stop gallant, was another name. I, I bite my thumb at you, sweat. <laughs> and yeah. so this disease, stop gallant, was an Ooh. epidemic disease that struck England, primarily, several times in the 1400s and 1500s, occasionally also striking more broadly in the rest of Europe. You know, you talk so fast, I didn't have a chance to say this, but all those names could be different seasons of show just about Dev Patel. <laughs> <laughs> the new acquaintance. Yeah, yeah the English sweat. Stop, Stop Nave, Nave and Know Thy Master. master. Yeah. yeah, Um. so the, uh, last, so two, right the last two, Stop Nave and Know Thy Master and Stop Gallant were sort of funny names that the poorer people 
called the disease because it primarily or it hit rich people harder than poor people. Mm, that's really interesting. Mm. And so like the upper class would be afflicted by it more often. Their and weak so, Norman blood. So, Stop, gallant. <laughs> Was one of like the names that like the poor class. Yeah, just poor people like some guy falls off his horse and fucking dies. But are there any theories why it was the rich? So they didn't do theories <laughs> back then. Okay, we just had a head. No, 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 so, so here, here's the thing. Unlike the plague, which is Yersinia pestis, we have positively identified as a bacterium. We do not know what disease this is. We don't know what the causative agent is to right. this day. There's no concrete evidence at all for what it actually is. There have been several theories. Do we know that it's actually an infectious disease? Like it was caused by a microbe or could it be something like genetics? Was it just psychosomatic? Yeah, or psychosomatic. <laughs> just just people got really sweaty people. and died. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. Um, so there's enough the records dream. of it kind of being written about by some doctors that suggested that there were these things called germs that could travel through the air from one person to another and then cause disease. Mm, sounds made up. <laughs> that this was an example Hoax. That's, of, that's of what they said back then. <laughs> having to watch out for germs because if you stayed in the room of the person, then you would get sick. So it does seem like it was a transmissible infectious disease. But it is otherwise still pretty mysterious. You know, in terms of the symptoms, it was characterized by chills, a really high fever, weakness, and then uncontrollable and apparently very stinky sweaty. Mm-hmm. So, Which we uh, talked about in our last episode. If you're stinky in 1400, that's some real stink. Yeah. It, really, it's, it's really stinky. Because the writers from this period like kind of make note that like in this time period, they were like, England is dirty and smelly. Yeah. And like, we hate it. Right. That, we hate England. <laughs> you know, that's what, that's a funny thing to point out, actually, is we have the sense to homogenize time periods or nations. England was a uniquely smelly place vis-a-vis other European and Arab, like, visitors. Yeah. yeah. Erasmus like, was like, specifically, screw England. <laughs> yeah, he, he was yeah. like, specifically, I hate that place. Belgium is not that far away. <laughs> I know. But some days in spring, the wind comes over, and you're like, ah, that's that English sweat <laughs> yeah, that I'm exactly. smelling right now. Exactly. Across the channel. Yes. So that's the thing, is that even though... We would characterize this time period as broadly a pretty smelly time. This is a really dank nation. Yes. And on top really of that, nation, though, yeah. like, even though England was particularly smelly, the sweat from this disease was apparently so pungent, it yeah. would drive people out of the room. Yeah, the like, audience needs to stick anymore. their head in their trash can filled with kimchi and smell that, and then they can finally understand what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, maybe you have to go out and buy kimchi first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go out and buy kimchi, and then bring it home, eat some, throw it away. And then smell yeah. it like a week. You need later. to regurgitate it, feed it to birds. Yeah, just stick it in your trash a couple of days. Yeah, and exactly. then you will smell the English mm-hmm. sweat. So very, very stinky. Numerous contemporaneous accounts made note of it. Right. And, <laughs> but yeah, it's really odd because setting aside the stinkiness for a second, uh, high fever, chills, these are kind of, you know, relatively characteristic mm-hmm. of a lot of different diseases. One of the things that kind of sets it apart from many other diseases, though, is that the fatality rate was about 30 to 50%. It's oh, pretty wow. good. Which is pretty solid. Yeah. It's not play good, but it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I yeah, mean, yeah. it depends. Yeah. It depends. It's respectable. It's respectable. Yes. Yeah. But also, it typically killed you within 24 hours of symptoms starting. Really? Wow. That sucks. Slash so, is awesome. So, you got your fever, and then pretty much within 1 to 18 hours, you were either dead... Mm-hmm. 
or you were probably going to survive it. Oh, that's pretty cool. So it just like sweeps in and sweeps out. That's not a very good plan for a bacteria because you can't transmit so easily. I mean, it hasn't right. been around for 600 years for a reason, probably. It well, so, so <laughs> it's died too quick. One potential bacterial option was anthrax. Mm. So some people have thought maybe anthrax, ah, like a particular strain. They'd say ye old gallant got a little envelope before <laughs> <laughs> yes. they got the sweats. <laughs> um, but that's kind of a less popular option compared to a few viral options, mm. which are things like there's a flavivirus option or a hantavirus option. And both of these are things that can cause similar sorts of symptoms. It's just there is no known one that actually causes these symptoms right now today. Mm-hmm. So it's not clear. Like, th- there's no matching disease now. Kind of sexy. It's well, like Sasquatch. You know, I mean, so a Let's lot of the on. more modern papers that I've read about this basically say that, like, we don't know why this disease disappeared, but, like, it could still be around. Right. You know what I mean? Like this virus could still be out in a reservoir. Sure, somewhere. sure. In reservoir populations of be Cornish our people. next pandemic. Exactly. Yeah, maybe. So that's exciting. Well, well, how does a disease die out? I mean, and this is the thing that bedeviled me with even Black Death. Still, is like even though obviously bubonic plague did not die out, why does it stop being transmitted at some low level like cold or something? Mm. Like what? What is it about this disease that could die out possibly? Yeah. So it's possible that it's. You know, actually an affliction from God on the rich for their sins. So, so that was an option. Probably, an dude. Option. Uh, another another <laughs> uh, bro, person. It's so, so it's interesting. The timing of this coincides with, with the these, English Civil War. Yes, well, with one the of Wars them. of the Roses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and specifically with Richard III's right. loss. A horse, a horse. Uh, my kingdom for a mother horse, which you guys recognize from 1995's Kenneth Branagh's Richard III. <laughs> Starring Samuel Jackson as Richard III. I guess we can beep it, but it's probably going to get cut. Did you, did you forget what's going on here? We're trying to do a PG version of this. Uh, maybe Great. we'll go the PG-13. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, basically, there's this Battle of Bosworth Field. You almost said Bosnia Field, I swear to God. You almost said Battle of Bosnia Field right there. Yeah, Bosnia Field. <laughs> they were in the Balkans. But okay, so it's the Battle of Bosworth Field. We're deciding who's going to be king of England. Right, and there's Richard III... Right, and he's currently king of England. He's a schmuck. And then we got Henry Tudor. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, he's hot. And there was actually a lord on the side of Richard the Third, Lord Dude, Stanley. Side lord. I always keep a side. <laughs> side lord. <laughs> and he was like thirty percent of Richard the Third's forces. And like right before the battle, he was like, "Up." Oh, my uh, my troops got the sweats, so we got to get out of here. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Gotta, and so he just withdrew his forces. Richard III had to go ahead with the battle anyway. And then later, Lord Stanley joined the battle again, but on Henry's side. Dude, what a butthole. Well, it was the winning side. Super rude. That's That's some drama. That's a sweaty butthole. But it it is on the record that he he had claimed that the sweats was involved. (laughs) And back then, his comment of everyone's like, ah, well, I mean, I don't totally buy it, but the sweats. Yeah, dude. So might have been that. And then that. Oh, wait. So do they say the sweats was the reason why he traded sides? Or just the reason why he left? That was the reason he claimed he needed to withdraw. Oh, okay. And that he, he was actually just switching sides anyway. Okay. Little turncoat. Yes, exactly. That was basically like the first big recorded actual epidemic because after that battle, there really was a huge outbreak of the sweat <laughs> uh, in London. And it just like ravaged England for a while. Damn, dude. Right at the start, essentially, 
of Henry the Seventh's reign. Yeah, dude. Right? Who was prime minister at the time? Uh, well, I don't Boris know. Johnson. Are you the first? I thought you said Morris Johnson is just a random person. And I was like, <laughs> you could be right. I have no idea. Like, honestly, you could be correct. Cromwell, probably, Cromwell right? There was a Cromwell. Anyway, the thing is, though, that there was another major outbreak of the sweat during his son's reign, Henry VIII. Mm. And then there was another major outbreak in his son's reign, Edward IV. Mm. Right? But then that was the end of the sweat in England. Can a Henry VIII lead into a Henry IV? Edward the Fourth. Oh, Edward! Oh, and Edward the Fourth. That was the last of the sweat in England. Yeah, and also Edward the Fourth was the last of the male tutors right. in England too. Oh, so literally, so you think it's like in as much as they rebelled against the Plantagenet dynasty, God afflicted them and the nation that they represent as a divine king with a unique and idiosyncratic disease. And upon the death of the male tutors, that curse was lifted. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go with curse on that one. Yeah, that's, there, I mean, there that's are people, bad science, Sean, but it's good. There were records at the time being like, the sweat is something that's happening to the people of England because of the rule of the Tudors over them. Mm. Well, that's, I mean, of course, famous Henry VIII is the one who split from the Pope, right? Yep. And, and established an Anglican church, yep. one of the first secular Protestant establishments. And so there were a lot of people looking for like health scapegoats there. That's true. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. True. We're like, yeah. oh, well, you got the sweats. Uh, you're smelly because you're bad Catholics. There's also another fun thing, which is that, like, so some people didn't buy into the whole, oh, it's because of the Tudor reign or whatever. Right. But suggested that the sweat was kind of imported into England because Henry used mercenaries from outside of England. Oh. And they're like, oh, it's all of those swarthy mercenaries yeah. <laughs> from, like, other parts of the world. Nice. They brought it into England. Nice. And then that went over to London. The only problem is that there was actually a minor outbreak of the sweat like two years before. Yeah, it the kind of, of elided some basic truths there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like how syphilis was like the French called it the Spanish pox. The Spanish called it the French pox. It's like, you know, everyone's always like scapegoating. Yeah, and everyone's yeah. banging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was also the sweat might have made a reappearance in the 1700s where it was called the Picardy sweat. Which sounds a lot like Pokari Sweat. Do you guys know what Pokari Sweat is? That sounds like a drink in 10 Ford. It's a real drink in Japan and Korea. Oh, really? That's why Sean's fetishizing this fact so much, is that uh, he is himself a man of Pokari Sweat. Yeah, I only brought it up because of the drink. (laughs) Uh, That's basically the only (laughs) reason. It would be like if there's a French province called Seven Uppery. (laughs) Sean wouldn't be able to help himself. (laughs) I would have to bring it up. So what is the drink? It's kind of banal, actually. I mean, how would you describe the flavor of Pokari sweat? I mean, first of all, it's lightly carbonated. Yeah. It's a little sweet. It's kind of like a not as intense 7-Up. I mean, it kind of tastes like a dank-ass dude's just a tiny amount of his sweat with some water. I don't like Pokari sweat, dude. I kind of hate it. You're really selling me on it. it don't drink it. <laughs> not, uh... I'm trying to not sell you on it. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to be good for electrolytes. Everything's good for electrolytes, But that's dude. why it's called so sweat. Claim. It's like, I, ha- I have whole bags of MSG that say good for electrolytes. Like, whatever. Well. <laughs> MSG is delicious, though. I mean, it is. It has sodium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's supposed to be. But okay, cool, okay. Some Pokari sweat. <laughs> yeah. <it's>, uh, <laughs> but yeah, basically, this disease has been gone for a while. We don't know where it's at. You huh. know what I mean? 
Who knows? Maybe it'll pop back in. But it was really freaking deadly at the time. It's interesting that you said hentavirus. I mean, that popped up in the 80s and did the same thing where it came in and then disappeared without trace. Yeah, it has a tendency to do that in a lot of geographical locations. Why Um, is that? It's possible that it has like something like a rodent population or something that is the actual natural reservoir. Mm. Some kind of event drives them into a human population. The transmission from human to human is not that good because it's not the natural host. Uh. And then it sort of will kill humans way too quickly. Mm-hmm. Can't really jump out of that population. And then we'll just like die out because there's like not enough transmission there. Right. And then it just like kind That's of really goes away. Because the hypothetical that it makes me think about because, you know, we happen to be talking about a point in England where lol they all can't read but like it's like it's like a a culture with a lot of writing right like it's a culture that is not purely oral anymore i wonder how many times this has happened in history like how many diseases have actually existed in the human primordial mists that don't exist anymore or that we just like we don't know about yeah i mean it's entirely possible that there are diseases that have popped up wiped out an entire town right and then we don't even know that that town existed (laughs) right right right. like that what what would we know about right And uh, there's a lot of, yeah, supposition we make where we correlate a disease and we're like, oh, that was an outbreak of blah, blah, blah. But, like, it could have technically been a similar strain of something or, you know, it could have been something different. Yeah, and, like, how they described diseases back then was different than we had to describe them now. And so it could have been X disease, but we're interpreting it as Y by what they're saying. But the way they're talking is really different. And over time... Oh, microbes change like they mutate so maybe and our immune system gets more sophisticated yeah so maybe the symptoms change or maybe it gets a little less virulent yeah which i think what syphilis was more virulent in the past than it is today yeah, yeah. interesting agreed really uh, yeah what do you mean agreed sounds like you have it you <laughs> agreed. said agreed in a weirdly emphatic way there i have time traveled don't worry about it <laughs> what's that theory co-evolution where a microbe changes and then we adapt to that and then the microbe changes to our adaption. I think symbiosis in the case of syphilis. <laughs> we complement <laughs> yeah. each other. Definitely. <laughs> We're both getting something out of it. We know. We know what's going on. Uh, we get those anyways. Yeah, 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 we get humor. We get... <laughs> oh, boy. All right, so I have a few example treatments. When you have stop gallant... Yeah. You know, you got like you 18 hours. You didn't have the comma in there clearly, so I literally thought it was a different word. Um, you have like 18 hours to like try out a treatment, right. right? So like this isn't one where like people got to cycle through like a lot of chicken butts or anything like that. Yeah. So, you know, some of these, they, they didn't have that many treatments out there. But uh, one treatment I got from Girolamo Fracastoro was to mix one dram of sphragus. Which I had to look up, and I don't even know if I have the right sphragus, because there were several options. But one option... There are several options. That's a good thing. So one option for sphragus is in invertebrates. It's a waxy plug that forms after mating between invertebrates to, like, keep stuff in there after mating. That sounds hard to obtain. You know that from personal experience? No, nah, I worked out of a very yeah. pick up a few things there. <laughs> no. 
And also, some men like Nathan and John Don't do develop these kind of things. Don't do like, this. it's, uh, it's Don't not do worth this. judging. Don't do it. Okay. Um, but uh, the other sphragus that I think is the probably the accurate one here are these like little balls of plaster that would sometimes get used by like alchemy type people for some of the recipes. So, one dram of that, in case you didn't know, Nathan, a dram is 60 grains. You know, it's so funny you say that because as you started that to say that, I was like, very condescending. <laughs> and then by the end of it, I was like, you know what? I guess I didn't know how much a dram was. Or an eighth of an ounce. And then one scruple of unicorn mm. horn. How much is a scruple? Back to the unicorn horn. So ah. scruple is 20 grains. Okay. AKA one third of a dram. So mm. however much sphragus you put in, you need to put in one third of that in unicorn horn. Okay. So complicated. I can see why they didn't treat a lot of sweats. Yeah, and you had to figure <laughs> this all out in 18 hours. <laughs> Half an ounce of vinegar. That's a lot. One ounce of Can't rose agree. water. So yeah. yeah. Wow. Pretty good. Vinegar, rose water, a little bit of plaster, and then apparently some unicorn horn. I think it's very cynical that he wrote a recipe that was impossible. (laughs) And so it can never be disproven. It's like, you're basically doomed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like scrambling for that last bit of unicorn, right? (laughs) This is like another dead person. It's one of those, give me your last money and I'll uh, try to fix you kind of thing. So for this dude, he suggested that people not be fed any food. While okay. they're sick with this. Okay. Oh um, and also... So he takes he, all your money and then tries to starve you. Solid doctor. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he wanted people to sweat as much as possible. So he was like, okay, look, clearly this disease causes sweating. So maybe we can end it sooner and then you can get back to your life if we get you to like sweat it all out. So he was like, oh. you need to be tossing blankets on these people. Like you need to get these people like hot, like as hot as possible oh so that they can like sweat all of the disease out and then we're going to be cool. And everything like that. That is awesome. Yeah, so some people died, I'm sure. Yeah, but, <laughs> but like, they were going to die, right? <laughs> I mean, 30 to 50%, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But to be fair to this guy, he also thought that there were little germs of the disease oh. that could travel from person to person, and that those germs were things that could cause the disease in another person. Smart. Yeah. Uh, and that they were invisible to the eye. I guess it's not smart. It's creative. It is no creative. Way to know anything. Yes, yes. It was before. It's very imaginative, it. really. Yes, clever <laughs> guy. Yeah. So then another treatment. This time from a guy named John Caius. Mm. The treatment was bread of sweet corn. Cornbread, I guess. Was that a thing in the 1500s? Cornbread. That's impossible, right? They didn't have corn yet. Yeah, right. They didn't I'm- have mice. I mean, in the later part of the 1500s, somebody might have had corn. I thought I said this was 1400s. It was 1400s and 1500s because it, oh, it, it went oh, into... That's true. That might have been lost in translation, too. Uh, there you go. Well, so yeah. So it says sweat corner, <laughs> but I don't actually know what that is, right? Uh, if, I mean, they could have called something else corn, and when they got to the New World, they were like, that's corn. I totally buy that, yeah. That's probably true. If anybody knows what C-O-R-N-E was back in the 14 and 1500s, I'd totally be down to understand. But it's it's sweet uh, sweat corner. Uh, so you need a bread of that. And then you need a drink of sweat malt. Uh, sweet malt? Is that a thing? I think these are things that even people back then were like, fuck, I don't know what that is. How do I get it? Well, so then you can never disprove the recipe. I think they made it purposely confusing. Like... Just totally. give you enough hope to think that there is some, and then you just die. A, a drink of sweat malt and good water. 
<laughs> is it good uh, with an E at the end? Yeah, good water, kindly brewed. <laughs> and especially no wine. So he was like very specifically, no wine. So I'm, I'm dying. <laughs> no way I'm getting through this one. Yeah, man. me too. Uh, yeah. Which is interesting because yeah. like several accounts of the disease actually explicitly state that wine should be avoided. But like this is a time period where like water was kind of suspicious to a lot of people. Right, so a lot of people cut their water with a little bit of wine at all times anyway. Yeah, or just like drink a lot of beer or something like that. Yeah. It, was, it was just like water quality was sometimes suspect, I think, accurately. It's, it's kind of like theories about lead in water in the 60s and 70s, right? And how, like, maybe that made, like, a uniquely violent generation. It makes you wonder about alcoholism back then. Like, maybe <laughs> maybe people were actually brutish, nasty, and short back then compared to now because they were just drunker always. <laughs> uh, it's pot. I mean, well, I, I like it. Well, it's interesting because it, it, that would be an unfair thing to say about, like, let's say Roman society famously drank a lot of wine instead of water. But on the other hand, their wine was highly diluted by modern standards. Well, Romans also killed a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. With the lead thing, by the way, it's also that, like, it, uh, there was leaded gasoline. Right. And so there was a lot of lead in the air just, like, around. Right. Which is not fun. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. Also, back then, they didn't realize that shitting in the water you drink is a bad thing. Sure. Well, they were putting fecal on... Yeah, exactly. They're, they're rubbing bandages. their wounds with poop. So yeah, like, just rubbing poop and everything. Yeah, well, what are you going like, to do? They're like, hmm, alcohol isn't making us sick. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. It's like a carnival cruise, man. Just going crazy up in there. <laughs> so another recorded treatment, this one used by Thomas Moore. Oh, yeah, he's cool, dude. To save his daughter, Margaret. <laughs> Did it work? It was an enema of water oh. containing oil of violets, mm. dried leaves of red roses, the yolks of two eggs, crushed aloes, saffron, and myrrh. That just sounds like a good enema. Yes, and to be fair, <laughs> while most of that <laughs> other medicinal stuff... medicinal things in there. Yeah, that sounds tasty, dude. Make me some paella out of that. <laughs> while God, most of the other stuff in there is probably not useful, an enema of water is probably actually like a great way to save someone's life from the sweat. Right. Because a lot of people them. died from dehydration. Hilarious. Mm. And, mm. and an hilarious, enema is actually yeah. like a pretty solid way to rehydrate people. Wow. And so Thomas More, who did save his daughter. Probably life, accidentally stumbled upon the best thing you could possibly do at that phase in time. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I don't think he like made any effort to tell anyone about it. I think he just like saved his daughter's life and was like, great. All right. That's it. Like game over. See? I thought you did. Didn't he take the effort to write down? this so this is actually notes from someone else who is with thomas moore wow what a dickhead, dude who was writing it down like in a journal save his daughter no one else dude not, i'm not... glad thomas moore got executed <laughs> that guy uh, bleep that what do you get executed for uh wasn't he all pissed off at henry the eighth because henry the eighth made the anglican church and wasn't wasn't thomas moore the fella who was like that is heretical and henry the eighth was like Cut! <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> like, you're, you're right. I'm, I'm pretty sure Thomas Moore got the chop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but deserved it, apparently. What a rude bro. Well, but if you feel that way, Henry VIII was actually the opposite way, in that he had his own cure for the sweat. Oh. And he you loved... You just marry him and kill him. Well, it was a concoction of wine and various herbs, as Hilarious. far as we know. And, like, he tried to give it to mm-hmm. everybody. Yeah. He'd just, like, run around trying to give it to people. Anytime that there was an outbreak of the sweat, he'd immediately, like, run away from town <laughs> and, like, be somewhere else. Even when, like, Anne Boleyn was, like, dying of the sweat, he was, like, 
sorry, dude. Like, I'm, I'm over here right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm you. king. Yeah. So, like, he clearly knew it was contagious, and he, like, stayed the hell away from people. Smart guy, dude. And then made everyone drink his, like, concoctions. Actually, the base is a modern glue vine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just like a stick of cinnamon, some fruit. It's like really good. It tasted Delicious. great. That's great. That's why they don't have the sweats anymore. Because oh, the Gluvan. Yeah. Gluvan. Gluvan. Well, that's what I got. That's what I got for that's the That's what sweats. you got. So yeah. that's the sweat. So Oof. it's a disease we no longer have. Oof, it was I'm... successfully cured from wine spiced with cinnamon. I'm kind of sweaty now. And actually. you're you have the sweats. Oof, yeah. Yeah. Here. Well, guys, we're gonna take a quick break. <laughs> Uh, so why don't we take a break and then come back with the pox leprosy and contraceptives okay cool let's do that (laughs) hi guys this is Stacy Song I'm a proud pet owner of a little leopard gecko named Bruce and even though I love her she's hard to read because she's a lizard I never know her feelings except when she bites but she never bites so I never know how she feels luckily for me Goop has a new line of mood crystals for pets. Just put one wherever your pet sleeps at night and it will synchronize with its subconscious aura. It works because, well, Gwyneth says so. The crystal changes colors with your pet's mood. Now I know my little Bruce is always sleepy because the color is always green. Thanks to Goop Mood Crystals. So guys, listen to Stacy Song, as in me, and go to www.gooppcrystals.com and use the promo code PETRIDISH to get 10% off your Goop purchase. This week's episode of The Micro Moment is brought to you by Zymo Research. Accurate and reproducible microbiome analysis relies on well-defined mock community standards as well as optimized methods for sample collection, nucleic acid extraction, library prep, and bioinformatics. Check out Zymo's complete microbiome workflow at zymoresearch.com. That's Z-Y-M-O-R-E-S. E-A-R-C-H dot com. We're back, I've decided. Okay, cool. (laughs) So we're back. All right, so I want to hear about contraceptives and the great pox and, and all of the things. What do we have going on here? The contraceptives is super interesting. I have three different contraceptive methods that were used in medieval times. Nice. What do we got? The first one, I'll go from least strange to most strange. The first one is to press the womb of a goat that never had kids against your nude skin and you will not conceive. I mean, I like it. But like when in the process of doing what? Do you do that? I think just whenever. Okay. Whenever you decide not to conceive. It's like not while you're like having sex or anything like that. It could just be like the week before. Well, I tell you what, if you're doing that instead of having sex, that is an effective contraception. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you're, like not, you're not making any That's true. Points. That's true. That'll work. Fascinating. Well, that's gross, man. 
So the next one actually has a time with it. So when you have conceived and you no longer want to have, like maybe you had a stillborn child and you no longer want to have children anymore, you can sprinkle some barley in the afterbirth and you do one piece of barley for every year you wish not to have kids. Uh, you know, what's funny is in Korea, they have kind of almost the opposite thing. After we got married, I mean, I mean, literally like the ceremony happened. Stacey and I, we changed into the Korean traditional garb, got into a back room, and then our parents just like hurled chestnuts and uh, jujubes at us. And the amount that we catched was the amount of kids we'd have. And I mean, like 27, right? Like we're supposed to fucking breed. And like, we've been pretty bad at it so far. <laughs> but uh, it's just... Why how, how is that supposed to be a good game? <laughs> no, it's, Because, it, well, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Because like, clearly it's very easy for people to catch like more than 10. You're supposed but, like, to... You're not supposed to poop out that that's many That's too many children. I don't mean to burst your bourgeois bubble shot. But what? like when this ceremony was invented, you're supposed to breed a lot. That's too many. <laughs> they they worked the calm farm. Down. Too many. They worked the farm shot. No, you need to put more seeds of barley in your afterbirth. Yeah, yeah I don't need the help, dude. I think I'm infertile. <laughs> but anyway, let's not talk about marriage problems, all right? <laughs> oh, my God. No, I would like to see, like, you try to convince the doctor in the birthing room, like, wait, wait, I need to put some barley in this placenta. I mean, dude, that's your patient rights, okay? Governor Ron DeSantis, okay, he signed into law. Well, I was just parents say, have the right to put barley in the placenta. I, I'm almost certain that here in California, like a doula can do whatever she wants to the placenta. Oh man, that's pretty cool though, dude. Okay, there's another contraceptive method, right? Yes, here is the third one. And this one is not one that PETA would appreciate at all. So you have to take a male weasel and remove its testicles, but then release the weasel alive. And then carry the testicles, you wrap it in goose skin and carry it in your bosom for as long as you want to not conceive. You know, actually, doesn't PETA support a lot of neutering projects to help keep down, like... Of weasel? I mean, look, PETA was not popular. I'm not sure they, like, stitched them up and released them. I think they just chopped and go. So just bleeding in the streets. Medieval PETA was not a popular organization. Well, they were blamed for the plague. In a lot why of why do the weasels have to still be alive afterwards? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I understand. guess that is the big question. Yeah. So with that. Why I don't can't, know. Why can't you just eat the weasel or whatever people do with weasels? I watched a video about that. About what? Well, it's a, I mean, eating yeah, it's about this English guy. He's this weird guy. And he would only eat meat when he found roadkill. And he was like this tiny little Englishman. Kind of looked like Schmeagold, like maybe like one year into getting the ring. <laughs> And he would just, like, slurp up an eye that he had roasted, and he'd be like, you know, like, I think it's important. Like, he's a very quietly, very environmentalist. He's like, I think it's important to only eat things that are found in nature. I think that it's all right to eat the roadkill. In fact, it's better, maybe. And he'd slurp up the eye. He'd be like, (laughs) this is my favorite part. Me and Stacey are like in South oh. Korea. It's like 2050. We're like, yes, this guy's guy awesome. <laughs> like this guy's Tolkien, dude. Wait, wait, when you say slurp, is that like with a straw um, or a with spoon his or tongue, how, how I do you slurp? He'd be like, <laughs> and it was like Tom Bombadil levels badass, dude. So much better than I was imagining. That guy, awful. Yeah, no, dude. I'm just saying English people and weasels go back, bro. All right? Like, like there's this great weasel tradition. 
in the English canon. That's true, actually. Yes, I agree with you. You know, um, not to say we need to do segues, because we're not going to cleanly segue from this, because we have some pox to talk about, but there are some Chinese birthing stuff I did want to eventually speak of. It turns out pregnancy... Oh, you, you should do Well, that. no, it's just, it's interesting how, like, y- you know, like... It, medicine was itself not only the domain of men, like whatsoever, in pre-modern times. There's actually a lot of female practitioners of different types of medicine who were slowly eradicated as men codified these traditions. Um, it's a mm-hmm. kind of interesting and kind of violent history. But in kind of like 6th century China, you kind of had a similar conversation going around around proper midwifery practices. In this case, because men were codifying, not of contraception, but of the opposite, how to maximize fertility. Like, you know, around the second, actually, I guess it was a third century CE, is when the Han Empire collapses in China. And for about 300 years, you have this interregnum of all these different empires that are rising and falling, these different dynasties, and you have Buddhism start to matriculate into China. And Buddhism is this really interesting force in medieval China because it's socio-politically. It creates nunneries of importance. In the next major Chinese dynasty, the Tang dynasty, you actually have the first female empress. You start to have women gain a prominence in Chinese civilization that they had always had in this non-written sense, but it starts to become more codified. And yet you also have this intellectual reaction against it, right? You have the men who are doing the writing who resent the increasing power of women. Wait, could women not write in this period? There actually are some female historians and some female writers. And of course, there's female empresses. You start having the first written works about pregnancy around the 600s CE in China. And they're clearly Buddhist, but you have court writers and physicians, and they quote Buddhist masters on breathing techniques. And... It's interesting because on the one hand, they say outright, we are modernizing pregnancy techniques. We don't think it matters that much what day the woman gives birth. We don't believe that there are ancient and evil gods that women are offending by doing these things. We think these are superstitions. Wait, wait, was it used to believe that the day of the week mattered on the health of the, the birth? Like... An incredible amount. So if you look back... So what day was the most unlucky? It's not that you can't give birth on a day, is my understanding. It's that given your day, given the year and given the month, you have to be careful about like things like the geography of a room, right? Things like the hour mm. of birth itself. Like you have to be... How the stars align. Right, yeah. There's like weird astrological rules and geometric rules. Like um, my understanding is in the Qin and Han dynasty, there are literally diagrams... Uh, birthing diagrams of how women should position themselves and how the other room, because there would be like a flock of ladies in that room. There'd be a lot of people badgering about it, which which really drove doctors crazy because they were like, there should only be, in fact, no one. It was interesting because Buddhist <laughs> guys took the opposite reaction. They're like, no one's in that room. Not even me. They would literally set up a crossbar. She'll do it by herself and when nobody else. Like CrossFit. <laughs> Troider's birthing room. Yeah, totally. And if the baby's dead or alive, you don't know till you open that box. You know, oh, like like literally, like the Buddhists were like, you gotta you gotta get like this whole crossbeam thing, and and you grip it and you squat birth. Uh huh. But prior to that, you had like these really fancy geometric designs that were supposed to maximize unoffensiveness to gods. 
Because if you gave birth in a way that was not geometrically pleasing to gods, whatever particular deity represented that day, uh, you, 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 you messed up. And the woman and the child would die. I feel like giving birth is stressful enough without bringing geometry into it. Like you look at this writing in the 600s. They're like, there are too many people that are confronting a pregnant woman constantly with superstitions. And it stresses them and gives them anxiety. And that's bad for birth. Like the woman should be in a place of no stress. You should you should make sure that she has a kind of, you know, like, like is not worried about any of that crap. So you can focus on birth. Like they cared a lot about breathing practices. Like they should focus on breathing that, that calms people down and causes less anxiety. And then on the other hand, they're like, also midwives are bad because women are dumb. And it's like, you want this to be like, an intelligent and progressive and forward-thinking worldview, but in reality, it's this circular muddle where, like, Buddhism in China brought real advances in the codification of herbal treatments in surgeries and ophthalmology and in rhinoplasty and also so utterly obliterated the power of women in traditional medicines. When I was reading about England, it was a lot of the same thing where they were talking about midwives and medicine was passed down from women to women. And then you had these monks or these people that went out to university and they're usually males. And then they're like, I have a real license. So don't listen to those women anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there was also all the, the witch stuff. Right, which a lot of times <laughs> yeah. was like very actively. It's basically, about. anytime you're afraid of a woman, you're like, you're a witch. Right. Yeah, that's the Aubrey Plaza movie version of that story, <laughs> <laughs> the witch stuff. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, and I think Nathan, you know, the the pregnancy angle is like a very interesting one because a lot of the ideas that they brought forward, like you were saying, could have a positive impact on the actual pregnancy, but like they also like consistently snuck in sort of like this poison pill of like destroying a societal element right of like mm -hmm. elevation for women because the same thing happened with midwifery in the 17 1800s right with the development of gynecology as an independent school of thought yeah yeah i mean yeah it wasn't until florence nightingale came and like made what nurses were viewed as like nothing until she came and really pushed for it and then they started getting respect again yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, in pregnancy practices in, like, the United States, it's taken until a lot more recently with, like, more acceptance of, like, doulas and stuff like that, that there has been kind of a resurgence of, and, of course, like, more acceptance of women into OBGYN, like, schooling and stuff like that, where we've actually seen a little bit more of a return to, like... The, in the pregnancy sphere, having, right. having women more actively being allowed in, quote-unquote, right? Yeah. I mean, pregnancy and fertility is really the sharp tip of the spear in talking about how, like, the professionalization and codification of ideas in medicine are good and laudable, I think, I think generally. But so frequently at the expense of other communities that had etched out for themselves positions of importance— Midwives is the great example, right? Like, midwives were clearly an important component of health for a long time. You know, in as much as there was some oral continuity in their practices, you know, like, practice some good stuff and practice some garbanzo beans garbage, right? Like, you could imagine a midwife both, like, burn sage above the door and, like, 
I don't know, like, it's just like, I don't even know, I don't know. this is weird, it's so funny, like, I'm a guy, like, I actually don't know what, what helps with the pregnancy. I was about to try to give an example, and I was like, I'm an ignorant schmuck. Vitamins. Vitamins. <laughs> Pre- prenatal vitamins. Those are good. <laughs> you know what? I thought that was nice, Nathan. You said some good words. Rude. I, I liked it. Why don't we take a break? Mm-hmm. When we come back... Why don't we talk about the rest of the things that you guys got? You know, because I think it would be bad for us to end without talking about the great pox. Like, that at least has to get in there. I think so, yeah. Now, let's go ahead and uh, let's talk about it. Let's get into the Great Pox. Sounds good. Yeah. So the Great Pox was a disease that went by many names. The French called it the disease of Naples, while the English and the Italians called it the French disease. It was even sometimes called the Spanish disease, but it was also known as the Great Pox or the French Pox. And it is actually caused by a bacterium called Treponema pallidum, which is a spirochete. Yeah, which means it's all kind of spirally looking. They're very cute. Yeah, they are adorable. We actually wrote a blog post connecting Treponema pallidum to Lady Proxima in Star Wars. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. It's very interesting. <laughs> well, so what, what's the modern name of grape pox? Syphilis. Oh, I didn't say that, huh? Ah, <laughs> okay. There we go. I was wondering. I had that vibe from it. <laughs> the way you guys were all kind of giggling a little bit when we were talking about all these other names. I was like, it's probably syphilis, but I wasn't sure. Yes, it is syphilis. Hey, so I always heard syphilis is from the New World. Is that true? Like, where's syphilis from? So they have a couple of theories, and some of them say that it was transmitted by Columbus. So that's where you get the New World disease, because Columbus brought it back from the New World. And there's actually other theories that say that it's from pre-Columbus time. And it's because of recordings or variants. It just wasn't recorded the way that it was in the late 1400s. Yeah, so a mystery. Interesting. A lot of things. Um, So I don't really know. I think you alluded to this earlier that like the early versions of it might have been a little bit naughtier than the later ones that we kind of like know nowadays. Yeah, yeah. So it's more symptomatic or more virulent than what we have today. It is transmitted through blood or bodily fluid. Most people contract the disease through sexual transmission. Right. Usually when soldiers would go to other countries, they would sleep with those native country women, and then they would go and end up contracting syphilis, which is why they could blame it on the other countries as the reason why they kept getting it. Because they would go to war with the French or they would go back with syphilis. Excellent. The most fun disease you can get from a war, probably. Yeah, way yeah, better. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> what, um, At least they had a good experience attached to it, hopefully. I know this is like, I'm probably the only guy here who hasn't had syphilis, right? But, <laughs> but like, what are the stages of syphilis? Like, what happens when you get syphilis? So we can have a baseline to talk about its virulency in past times. Like, there's three stages, right? Or two or something? Four. Four. Awesome. Okay, so yeah. first stage syphilis, rock and roll, like you're just having a great time, and one skin lesion, like, well, um, what is it? Yeah, basically. 
So each stage gets exponentially worse than that last one. And so the first one, you get a little lesion and it's not that bad. And then as you go through, it gets worse and worse and worse and you get fevers and chills. And then you can enter a stage where you have no symptoms, right? And you think you're getting all better and you're cured. And then suddenly you get really, really sick and you can get neurological disorders and spinal disorders and the bridge of your nose will actually collapse. And then you walk around with all these deformities. And then of course you can pass this down to your children who can get congenital syphilis and uh, you can get syphilis of the eye and there are all sorts of syphilis and they are all terrible. <laughs> it's bumming me out, man. God damn. Congenital syphilis. Oof. Okay, okay. What made it more virulent back? Like, what does that even mean that is more virulent back then? It basically means that the symptoms are more traumatic. They cause more symptoms than they do now. They're more intense than what we see now. And now most people don't even get to tertiary syphilis because we can treat it pretty easily with penicillin. So if you have syphilis and I don't know if it just takes like two weeks of penicillin and boom, you're cured. But back then they didn't have antibiotics. So it just seemed like you had it and then you didn't have it. And then you keep spreading it around and then eventually right. it gets into your brain and that's no good. And that's how they think Al Capone probably died as well. Wow, that's like... I mean, that was like 1700s. That was kind of recent. The famous American gangster Al Capone <laughs> yeah, yeah, running around with New York Washington. City. Yeah. So, you know, nowadays you mentioned penicillin as a treatment, but what about back in the day? What would they do to try to treat this stuff? So they had a number of ways to treat it. A lot of it was toxic heavy metals like arsenic and mercury, which is super great for you. Right. Well, way less embarrassing to die from that. Yeah, right? right? It just makes you a little crazy. You both spread it less because you're dead. And also, no <laughs> one exactly realizes you have syphilis because you're dead. So, I mean, like, I get it. You know, I mean, I would do that. I'd be like, yeah. give me that arsenic. You know? <laughs> no problem. <laughs> but okay, so you got heavy metals. What else, how else do you cure it? Do you, like, rub chickens on your butt? So, I think it's really interesting that surgery actually got a big push because of syphilis. Because it would cause you to lose your nose. And that's sort of a deformity that people don't normally like. So, what they would do was some early skin graft techniques where they would cut a flap of your cheek or later they would cut a flap of your arm and then strap your arm to your nose until it took and you get a skin graft and hopefully your nose would grow back in some sort of form and you wouldn't have this big gaping hole in the middle of your face. Yeah, I, I feel like wasn't that technique like a little bit like that wasn't that long ago, right? I thought that that was like done like relatively recent in history like leading up to us finding penicillin. Yeah, I'm not sure when they stopped doing it, but the person who discovered it was Branca de Branca in Sicily, who did the cheek to nose. And then his son Antonio Branca did the arm to nose. And this was in the 1400s. And then it became known as the Italian. What a method. pathetic family lineage, huh? The Italian method, though. Branca de Branca, like family <laughs> of nose to arm. The Italian method sounds like a like a way of making like a certain kind of bread or something. I'm pretty sure it's a Michael Caine movie. Oh, it does, yeah. <laughs> the Italian method. That's excellent. <laughs> but, uh, wow, gosh. So, like, I mean, it's interesting because I guess syphilis still exists. What could possibly make it less virulent now? 
Yeah, well, if you think about it, like if a microbe kills someone, it kind of it fails. It can't really spread that much. Right, right. If you have someone still alive, then you can keep propagating, keep spreading to other people. So it's this is the hunter virus problem. You guys are junta, hunter, hunter. The yeah, well, that that's a so I still have not discovered how to say <laughs> it, but like that's that's the that's the problem with that virus is just kills everybody in a village and then they're gone. Whereas like syphilis, this is the sweet spot. You just spread a little bit of syphilis for the rest of humanity, and it has its own little niche. That's awesome. And you got to remember, microbes like their generations are pretty short, and every generation is going to come with some sort of mutation. And those might become more virulent, and they might do nothing. They may even kill off the bacteria. So every single time, they are just a little bit different. Right. Damn. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I feel like in the 15 and 1600s, when I read primary sources, syphilis was a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Just like everyone spraying syphilis and all their crazy wars they were fighting. Is there a point where syphilis, everyone kind of calms down about syphilis? <laughs> like, it's kind of like, <laughs> like, I don't know. It's just I like mean, after antibiotics were discovered. Yeah, probably. yeah. it was like once we figured out how to uh, like actually cure it. Al Capone still died of it, yeah. I mean, even in World War II, there was huge propaganda against venereal diseases, which is syphilis and gonorrhea mostly. So even as close as then, people were concerned with syphilis. Yeah, we talked about this some when we discussed the Tuskegee experiments. Right. Yeah. Oof. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the, that was the, not that long ago. Yeah. There That's were big true. problems related to this kind of stuff Oof. until pretty recently. Yeah, baby. Do you have more great pox? Great pox news? Nope. That's it for now. <laughs> I think we have three yeah. blog posts on it. So we did get a little obsessive at one point. Yeah. Got, got I do little... like the premise of the word news. Right? We'll get updates. Yeah. About Great Box. Hey, you know, it might be down. It's not out. (laughs) I mean, mean, that really is true. It's never going to be out. Wasn't it that syphilis was increasing over the last 10 years? Was it syphilis or chlamydia? I thought it was both. I thought it was like basically anything that wasn't like HIV AIDS was like kind of on the up and up in the last decade. I know that for a while, chlamydia was like shockingly prevalent. Yeah amongst uh people under the age of 24 and like over the age of 70 or something like that like oh over the age of 70 i did hear nursing homes (laughs) awesome yeah that's fun to think about great they still call the great pox there (laughs) (laughs) the great pox (laughs) well on that note should we should we start to wrap this up yeah yeah i think so wow good job everybody yeah we really had some good stuff there yeah, yeah not, not only was that a really incredible amount of content, both informative and nonsensical. Why are you looking at me? I think we all contributed. <laughs> we all contributed mouth words. That was excellent. Yeah, I mean, thank you guys. I mean, together, I think we took like a pretty interesting jaunt through the world of medieval miscellaneous and garbage. You know, and it's kind of amazing that a lot of their medicinal practices turned out to be useful and it's utterly unsurprising how many medicinal practices are totally bad maybe so we can keep them hot <laughs> you know i will never forget rubbing chickens on wounds i was already doing it but now i have a good reason to do it and it's history yeah i mean i think the main takeaway though is that you need to pluck the butts mm-hmm. before you put the butts onto your body that was my mistake right. I yeah know. you've just been... <laughs> yeah. it has to be skin on skin contact yeah, yeah. skin on skin dude or it's, it's not gonna important. work <laughs> Uh, well, these are both medical podcasts, so I hope our listeners have taken something useful. Oh, my good. Dude, don't be saying those words. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely don't take medical advice from this. 
Yeah. At least not from this episode, right? Like, this two-parter is not the episodes to glean anything from. Uh, all right. Uh, <laughs> Nathan, you're terrible. All right. <laughs> well, that's the end of our show, and we hope you enjoyed it and that you continue listening both to The Micro Moment and to Petri Dish. You can visit our website at microbigals.com or our Twitter handle at microbigals. And you can find Petri Dish at... On Twitter, at Dish Podcast, and you can email us at PetriDishPod at gmail.com, and we have Patreon.com slash PetriDish. All right. Well, that was a great combo episode. Thanks so much for hanging out with us, y'all. Yeah, thank you guys. Excellent. Yeah, it was really fun. I enjoyed it. And I learned a lot. <sighs> Maybe too much about chicken butts. <laughs> it, it was a lot of that. I yes. learned valuable things that I'm going to use. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I know. Definitely things I'm going to use for the rest <laughs> yeah. of my life. Yes. All right. Well, listeners, we'll see you all next time. Mm-hmm. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.